Lord, make me an instrument of the years. What is risen? Where there is hatred. Let me Where there is danger. Pardon. Where there is doubt. Thank you. Oh God, oh Jesus. This is so strange for me because I um, usually, Colton sits right here next to the sound equipment, our guest sits here, and I sit in a chair over here, but they've since sold my podcasting chair. What we happened? Did. Where did they sold it? They sold it uh, for, the, for this Daddy monstrosity. Daddy wanted a recliner. This. I know. It looks like we have a pregnant mother in the house. It, it looks like one like, of those maternity chairs. It looks chairs. like you guys Don't have forget a that. No, no, no. Maternity chairs are gliders. They're yeah. far nicer. Yeah. Well, you rock. <laughs> I well, love the, the glider. Yeah, like, yeah. That chair looks like there should be a golden retriever sleeping at the foot of it. Or like, or just an old man seated in it. Yeah. Some well, slippers. That's cut to me you in know, my chair. You got to age fast. Uh, Otherwise, I feel like I you, am these you're, days. You're not. You're, you're holding on to your youth. Do you know how distant you are from old? Yeah. Well, if I shave this beard, especially, I would look like I'm a little baby boy. Just a wee baby. That, that's wee okay. Baby. At a certain point, you'll want to look like a baby boy again, and you'll be able to shave your beard. So I'm told. So I'm told. Let's just let's start with a real softball of a question. You a podcast guy? Do you listen to podcasts? You know, I listen to the radio, which I think of as the uh, godfather <laughs> the, or actual parent of, of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so our um. Are you from Los Angeles? No, I'm Canadian. Okay, all right. But I'm uh, my family's Moroccan. Okay, and Canadian, and then I met my wife in D.C. and she's an Angelino. Okay, and her family is originally Eastern European and American. Indiana, Michigan. So it surprises me right away to learn that there is a Jewish population that is hailing from Morocco. That comes that comes as news to me. Not so much anymore. Okay. Um, Moroccan Jews are very small in number today. Mm-hmm. But in the 50s and the 40s, before the decolonization of North Africa, you had a much larger Jewish presence in North Africa. And... Um, but those folks largely left uh, through decolonization. Initially, what I thought was kind of interesting about you and our first interaction took place at Colton's wedding. And uh, I think it was like 9.30 in the morning after an evening in which I had probably had a, a little bit too much to drink. So I was nursing that with croissants and cheese. I started talking to your wife and we got into talking about Bible things. This happens when I'm drunk and hungover. I talk about Bible things. Why not? And then you and I started talking and I was like, this is, this is a wild conversation filled with uh, perspectives I'm unfamiliar with and a whole, a whole experience of Judaism uh, as like a sort of liberal philosophy or, or like a, a liberal approach to um, Talmudic scholarship that I like had never experienced before because I had only ever seen, you know, very traditional or Jewish culturally, but not religiously. Well, and we describe it more as like um, less using language like liberal and conservative, even though I use that language. Um, But more as it's a very living Judaism. 
like our synagogue here, Ikar, led by Sharon Brous, she's an amazing uh, rabbi, great sermonizer, just love being a part of that community, and, and it's wonderful. And But it, it's not alone in doing that kind of work. What makes Ikar such a dynamic or different kind of congregation when compared to where Judaism is at as a whole in America today? I think there's a few things that uh, Ikar's doing. One, I think they're open arms. It's a full, fully inclusive community. So come as you are. Um, And in a way that is, I think, like I kind of think L.A., is already a city that is very open arms and it's like a sanctuary and and that's wonderful um it's one of the most magnetic and attractive parts of of this city and the energy uh, of it and i think ecar does that in a way that it it commensurately feels open-minded even in a context that's already really open um so i love that i think that that's that's special, you know, and you get to meet folks who've got really interesting stories. I think they make worship really actually interesting for one, you know, wonderful music, um, leadership happening there, really cool experimental stuff. So they're doing new stuff musically, liturgically. That's nice. That's pleasant. They should keep doing that. And I think that, um, Sharon, She's incredible. I mean, she's she's a thinker, a, a, you know, a leading Jewish thinker um, of our time, and she's helping, you know, rewrite um, the script, you know, for so many communities. And at the same time, they're doing a lot of of pushing the boundaries of traditional. Um, mainstream Judaism that other congregations have tried, but she blends it and, and the congregation blends it in a way that's great. But most importantly, Rabbi Brous speaks, um, she speaks the truth. She speaks confidently about the contemporary society in which we live and, and what our values call us to do as a community. In America, the story of the Jews has evolved over the last 75 years and since the war in a, in a pretty significant way. And so Sharon calls on the community um, to you know confront its privilege, to acknowledge where failures have occurred, and to try to be better, better people all of us, you know, um, and also, um, in, in ways, um, you know, she, she draws it out of us and then that's, that's wonderful. She makes you think. When you say privilege, are you talking about like, like life has gotten better for Jews in America over the past 75 years? Yeah. And so that's how, in what way does that need to be confronted? Like, does it create kind of an apathy or? Well, it's not gotten better for everybody or Mm. there are still folks who, for whom life is not great, and we should um, be very concerned about that. You know, we should be very concerned about, and we should be concerned from a biblical and a moral place, a spiritual place that should say, huh, when the uh, president sends out his 
like insane secret police ice force to go arrest people of color because maybe their paperwork isn't in order. That's, Mm. you know, that's outrageous. That is against God. That is against morality. That's against humanity. And we should all stand up and be outraged about that and refuse to let it happen. So that kind of stuff, you know, and so I don't think she, she doesn't, um, parse it right when it comes to that and she brings to bear um our tradition onto contemporary life in a very um in a just a very special way huh well that that's what i'm interested in because i born and raised christian born and raised fairly conservative never saw female pastors mm-hmm. for the most part mm-hmm. if they were pastors they were like children's pastors sure, they just did sure. like all the babysitting And so when I started diving more into Judaism and it just became more and more interesting to me as I studied, honestly, my own Christian faith in seminary, I was like, the Jewish people do some really cool shit because they just never let this part go. And Christians just skipped the Old Testament, went to the New Testament. We're very ritual. Yes. We love ritual. But you're also very communal. It's like a very tight group of people. And even when it comes to like dating and marriage it is i feel like it's entrenched in jewish culture to marry a good young jewish boy or girl you know like when oh, it's so funny because in the jewish community there's a lot of discussion about intermarriage and mixed marriages and how to hmm. how those families work and in fact more than half of jews marry non-jews really hmm. yeah just in this generation or You'd historically have to, yeah i think you probably get that rate for like mm, 20 years you know mm-hmm. yeah since as cornell west puts it since jews became white folks roughly <laughs> in the late yep. 60s and 70s you know that is an interesting demographic so analysis when that um normalization and, and essentially yeah, destigmatization of jews in american life happened i think yeah you saw a lot more we saw a lot more intermarriage and a lot more mixed families. That's interesting to me. Mixed ancestry is pretty, that's pretty common in I mean, America. yeah, even biblically speaking, it's common. And it's yeah, yeah, that's like the whole thing. Yeah. You know, we need that actually. I really thrive on the mixed ancestry's families because, you know, Jacob's family, while large. Yeah. There's still just one pool of genes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to elbow out from time to time. <laughs> Get a... It's a good way of putting yeah. it. I never thought about, I guess as an outsider perspective, like if you were a marginalized, majorly marginalized, persecuted group within this lifetime, like World War II and all the persecution that Jews faced. And in the same lifetime, granted a long one, you would experience kind of like abundance, if you will. And like with that, that quote that you referenced was like when Jews became white kind of thing. And then asking people to give that up when it's just like, we just got it back. Like we just got into the sweet spot. And now you want us to kind of like go out on the front lines and maybe risk our neck for speaking out for other people on the margins. That seems like an interest. Is that kind of like the back and forth motion that is felt within the community a little bit? I don't, I don't think it feels very back and forth. I think we're the community is pretty focused because not everybody has um, 
not everybody in the Jewish community has necessarily a, a particularly better experience, you know, and so being marginalized, yeah, informs, I think, a lot of the broad-based Jewish communal concern with today's marginalized, but it was, what, 18 months ago or two years ago that we had a protest in Charlottesville, Virginia, at one of the leading universities in this country, uh, where lunatics with tiki torches and um, were marching around saying Jews will not replace us. So mm. Jews know, and the community is pretty aware. You know, it was Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Ten mm -hmm. people were murdered inside. So Jews know that um, there's been great progress in America as a whole, but there's still a lot, a lot to be done. identity as a Jew is really um, bound up, I think, in how I choose to live my life and what are the values that I choose to bring to my daily choices and the people I interact with and the relationships I build and the work I do. And Where do you land personally on, like, if, I, if there, there was a scale and on one side it was like, I just enjoy the cultural rituals, and the other one was, I believe all of this through and through, like... Well, I guess I don't see them as even a that's scale. that's not a scale. Yeah, I'm like I can have all those things, so and you would say I both. can have I can struggle with all those yeah. things, and I can wrestle with it. That's great. That's mm. part of identity for for all of us in some ways. But you know, it's like any good old idea. You chew on it for a while, and. Like any piece of gum, it'll lose its flavor eventually and you'll try something else on. And that doesn't mean that you need to um, find a new religion at the end of the month, you know, or after 10 years, you yeah. just might need to tap into a different part of who you are. Huh. A different part of who you are. I have to stop here and acknowledge the beauty of Sean's analogy for a moment. I've known Sean for a while, and he's got a knack for having some of these Sean-isms, which are quirky references and seemingly benign metaphors that actually become quite profound the longer you think about them. I'll admit, at first, I didn't really think much about Sean's answer to this question until about the third time I heard it during the editing process. If you listen back, you'll hear that I teed him up to answer a question about his identity that put him on a spectrum between cultural Judaism and religious conservatism. He totally subverted it with a both and rather than the either or I originally framed it as. Classic move for a bohemian like Sean. Alas, not all of us have such a naturally pliable identity as Sean. We often don't allow ourselves to acknowledge that our desires or perceptions can waver drastically over time in regards to such loaded topics like our commitment to certain religious beliefs. For many, doubt or a fading commitment to a church triggers deep-seated feelings of shame and fear. So I want to take a brief moment to unpack one word from the man JC himself that may change the way you think about having a pliable identity or even just having some fluid religious beliefs. In Matthew 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, his first recorded words are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word repent probably triggers some thoughts of moralistic adjustments to your behavior, like stop swearing, stop drinking, and say you're sorry to people you've wronged. Not that those things are bad, but the word repent, as it's written in the Greek, 
is more accurately translated, change your mind. Part of me just wants to stop there and let that sink in like a mantra at the end of a yoga class. Change your mind. Namaste. I've been in a season of trying to be more open-minded and getting married and experiencing some death in the family. We'll do that. And these experiences have already caused so many of my long-held assumptions to unravel. It also triggers some crippling thoughts like, what the hell have I been doing my whole life? But on a lighter note, open-mindedness is what Richard Rohr calls the most rare and crucial gift. And yes, a Richard Rohr quote means it's time to take a shot for all of you playing at home. Being open-minded, to me, is just another way of describing faith. You don't know, so you have to have faith. You're open to possibilities you hope to be true while leaving space to be totally surprised. And I talked about a willingness to be surprised by what are known as black swan moments during our episode with Travis Entel, our uh, generous atheist friend. So go back and give it a listen if you haven't already. But in regards to Jesus' call to repentance, it's important to remember that he clashed the most with religious folks because they resisted change, personal and religious change. They would have answered the question I asked Sean easily since they liked either or options. You're either a devout Jew or you're a heathen Gentile and never the two shall meet. Obviously, I don't assume there's a ton of listeners out there condemning Gentiles and non-believers, but I do believe it's human nature to hunker down on beliefs that make us feel comfortable and safe. Yes, all humans, both liberals and conservatives, share this tendency. It doesn't matter if you're in the front pew or the back. It doesn't matter if you got a pink mohawk and a face tattoo. There's a comfort in your decision-making as much as that suburban Midwestern mom don't channel. Jesus came to shake those mental bunkers in all of us and act as a counter-pressure to our spiritual, emotional, and relational complacency. We're going to talk about this a little later, but there's a Martin Buber quote that goes like this. When two people relate to each other authentically and humanly, God is the electricity that surges between them. I believe whatever or whoever Jesus was, he created an electrifying connection with people wherever he went. Sometimes that shocked people for the good, sometimes for the bad, sometimes just for the sake of a divine mystery. It depended entirely upon how open they were to the connection. So if you're listening to this podcast, then I'm pretty sure that you're open to some odd, abrasive, marginalized, or eclectic perspectives. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to keep your mind open to change, even when it hurts, even when it means that asshole might be right, because the open-minded ones are the only ones making a difference in this world. Anyway, back to Sean. You just, you have to find out what works for you and when it works for you. I mean, you know, if we all stayed the same. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. I think a lot of Christianity, though, is, hey, stay the same. Like the faith <laughs> that you got when you were a little kid with the flannel graphs, keep that same faith till when you're 70. You should be repeating the same stories in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think a part of my admiration of Judaism is like even Israel means like to wrestle with God. Like your whole, even your natural response was like, no, nah, I got both. Like that kind of nuanced embrace of, yeah, both and. I, I both enjoy the culture and have my doubts and both you, feel you devout. You have paradoxes in Christianity. You have three gods that are one. I'm not talking about paradoxes. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about <laughs> embracing a natural, almost just a natural embrace of 
doubt. I think I, I think uh, I can't speak for Colton's uh, upbringing exactly, but I know that my upbringing as a Christian was I was brought up in this faith tradition that was influenced directly by two parents who had not been part of the not been part of a faith or a church, and then had wild spiritual experiences. And those spiritual experiences were interpreted as like, that was God manifested through his son, Jesus Christ, and you need to surrender your life to Jesus and be Christians now. And they both were sort of like, well, I can't explain that experience. That certainly seems to check out. We are Christian. So I was, so like a lot of the Christianity that I was exposed to was taught to me by people who sort of had this, there was a little bit of a notion my parents would not they they would not be this way anymore. Um, but there was a little bit of a notion of like, look, we were outside of it. This is it. What that like what we were outside of before, we were wrong. There's nothing out there. There's no need for you to go looking. My dad used to always make the joke, like all growing up, my dad would be like, you don't need to do any sinning. I've sinned enough for both of us. You're good. And it was the the implication of like, I've made all the mistakes, just take my word for this. Like, you don't need to venture out there. So, like, my experience of faith has almost been the opposite of that, in that I was raised with this strict, um, this literal biblical view, where you read the Bible as God literally spoke these words to people who penned it exactly. It is transcribed. And like, that was what I was raised with. So my spiritual experience was like, I, th- I think I got to like wander out of this a little bit. I, I sort of have to like go get a, like, I mean, I had to go get a little lost and sort of like figure, f- figure my way out from there. And I'm still in that process. And I think what's interesting is that you talk about your faith um, as being, all of that is a little bit more holistically included. And I would imagine that that is like a piece of the faith that you are, you know, is a part of your family life and will probably be instilled in like the faith that your children are introduced to is this notion of like, you gotta, you gotta poke at it a little bit. You gotta poke at it. You gotta see what, you gotta pull at it. You gotta see what comes off. You gotta see what sticks. You have to like, you have to, you have to play with it. Yeah. I mean, I think first I'll say no one, Maybe somebody tried to persuade me at one point that God spoke to Moses, Moses wrote it down, and all five books are right, you know, from the list. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so no no one, no one made that case. Um, but even if they had, as a kid, you know... It doesn't pass the sniff test. You're like, okay, cool. <clears throat> Some of these storylines go, but like Leviticus, no one's writing that down. No one wrote that up and invented that and was like, after all these great narratives and parables, let me just give you 17 chapters of rules. <laughs> just straight one-liners after another. Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of can tell as any reader, you're just like, okay, I see we're in a, a phase of just getting some directives out yeah. here. Clearing. Yeah. God really changed his style up abruptly. There, yeah. Kind of right yeah. The and middle. so like you, you know that that's different than Noah. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like, okay, I get it. And so as a result, you have to 
see that even though there's like lots of maxims and there are truths and dogma, um, you do have to find your own dogma. And especially to kind of be active um, in a synagogue these days, it's like often it's so attached to having children and wanting to figure out a nice uh, easily packaged, structured way to pass on a solid set of values and offer some consistency um, because the world feels so unpredictable, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that element tends to draw people in, of course. And I think um, as a result, you don't, you have a lot of folks and in, in, on a lot of points of Jewish life, I would be the same way. It's like, you just run that stuff on cruise control. You might be like, okay, sure. Now this isn't for me, but it's like for some people they'll just be like, yeah, I don't, I don't eat pork. I don't eat shellfish. Mm-hmm. Easy, easy. Other people are like, well, I don't use my phone or electronics or other things on Shabbat or I drive on Saturdays. I don't do that. Is there any like internal shame or judgment when some people are a little bit more flippant about a, uh, maybe a, a rule or practice like that? These are hotly contested oh, okay. choices. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you're talking yeah. about it like, oh, well, you just do it or you don't. Well, do you, it, I but. mean, they as much as they're hotly contested, like the consequences are not so severe. Yeah, you know, it's just they, arguing. You just, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> oh, my parents are disappointed in me. So maybe I'm like desensitized to my parents being disappointed <laughs> in me, but I don't think they are. I actually think they're quite, yeah. they're very yeah. loving and they yeah. always say nice they things. They might prefer you do yeah, one or sure, two Yeah, sure, sure. But maybe they don't actually feel that way. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and as a new parent, I'm like, yeah, you, uh, you do rationally want your child to find their own way. But if their way finding leads them to a place where you're like, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's going to be harder, you know? And so, and I can already feel that stuff with a, a two-year-old and I'm like, whoa, mm. whoa, whoa, take your finger out of the plug. Yeah, that's not cool, man. You know? <laughs> and then I hope he doesn't necessarily do that, you know, with his heart or with his body later in life, but yeah, it'll be up to him. I, I am only going to have a certain amount of control. And so, yeah, for a lot of people, the choice to, um, wrap to fill in or not wrap to fill in or to keep a practice or to believe a certain thing, you know, um, all of that is hotly contested. There is no universally accepted stuff. There's barely universally accepted answers on who is a Jew. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, these are all debates. They're good. They're raging. But that's like, that's part of what I'm saying about a living a living tradition you can't have an ancient tradition unless it's talking about those things you have like the talmud which is like the cultural commentary right yeah see this is this is going to be fun for you guys because the way we count them we've got five books the torah the Torah. Plus, you, you still read then, like Ruth and all that. And, yeah, of course, of yeah. course. No, the other books are in the mix. Yeah. But those those are the masters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the master works. And everything else really is a response or an addendum to that. So how much in a typical church service or temple service growing up, 
a congregation service. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. I'm going to default all, to Christian All of terms. these okay. things are adequately positive. How much great. are you hearing from the Torah versus how much are you hearing from the Talmud? Oh, that's complicated because okay. like, say three quarters of the prayers are like, um, you know, uh, thank you God for this awesome passage from the Torah. <laughs> then you yeah. say the passage, right? Yeah. So it's like, sure, it's the, not the Torah, but it is the Torah. So, so what about with, from like preaching and teaching? Do you feel like it's, is it ex, like some exegesis of the text or is it like, let me just read what the Talmud said? You get, I think you get to draw on all the commentators and all the midrashim to to make like great, you know, homiletic points if that's what you want to do. Um, but you, in a, in the bizarre, you know, calculus of halacha or Jewish law, the ultimate is in the text. Okay. So it's like the Constitution. <laughs> The Constitution yes. of Judaism, where it's very, it's very like clear. There's a, there's a handbook, right? Yes. Also known for its clarity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also known for no ever fights about it. Yeah. It's all right there on paper. That's right. So yeah, you know, you get uh, that's your handbook, and then you know you wear wear a kippa and a talis, and boom, that's your outfit, your I- uniform. I will say I really appreciate it. And this is all like, this all came much later to me. Uh, like as an adult, I had to, I had to do some pretty serious uh, religion deconstruction to either, even get to the point where I felt like I had the freedom to read the Bible and to be like, oh, just because it's in here doesn't make it like a story about righteousness. Like just because oh, it's, yeah. just because there's like, just because this you know, we used to call them like heroes of the faith. Just because this hero of the faith did this thing and he says like, I did it because God told me to do it. That is open to like prying a little bit. That is open to interpretation. Even Abraham was like, yo, what are you doing here? Yeah. You're going to kill all these people. Yeah. Yeah. That's not even, and Abraham didn't have to carry out the bad actions to get rid of Sodom and Gomorrah. God did it himself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that there are some really terrifying stories where the moral of the story is like, Hmm, it doesn't feel so, I guess the moral is shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so sometimes maybe that is the moral, (laughs) frankly, you know, I think a little bit that that's part of, but that's, part of all of it you know even the story of Korach is a little bit like you should push and prod but if you challenge my leadership I'll open up the earth and swallow you and your whole tribe yeah that's a terrifying story and it and and those stories are (laughs) those stories are really weird I I'm always interested in those stories from the from the paradigm from the Jewish paradigm because we always had to read those stories as then like there's all this savagery and war and plague and pestilence and people dying by the millions. And then Jesus shows up and he's God and he's like, be chill and love each other, everybody. (laughs) And so then you had to go back and basically you had to read the old Testament. And I can't, I think every single Christian kid myself and every kid I ever knew was like, what's up with this like character change, like right here in the middle of this book. And everybody's like, well, God just sort of just sort of started doing things differently, and I'm like, okay, 
Well, I guess I'll hang on to that understanding for another 10 years, but uh, I don't, like, yeah, that, that, like, we always had to interpret it through this, like, hippie, peace-loving Jesus character. It was basically like, yeah, 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 that's some old shit. Yeah, it doesn't count anymore. Jesus is where it's at. It's nice that Jesus is a, like, loving hippie in your story. That's good. It's very, it's very, very approachable. It's good, but confusing. It's very confusing. Because eventually you're going to start asking some questions about, like, if God is so loving and so kind, why did he kill the men, the women, the children in so many towns? Like, what's this wrathful, angry God who's taking vengeance and getting bitter and he's jealous. And then Jesus is like, no, nah, man, let that go. It's all good. Like turn the other cheek. And as like a young mind, you're like, I don't, I don't know how to compute. Even as an old mind, even like post-seminary, it's still like that's, unless you have, unless you're knee deep in like context and historical guidance. Yeah, but Jesus is a reaction, right? Is a reaction to Jewish life, especially Jewish life of the time. Ab- absolutely. And but that makes, so it makes so much more sense to be like, no, no, it's not, it's not about doing Because Jews are a lot about doing how you act in the world, right? I said handbook, uniform. This Mm -hmm. is like, I'm going out. I'm going to go live in the world. I'm going to be a righteous dude. All right, cool. Plant some seeds. Don't kill my siblings, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) And then, right, those are very important tasks. Once you get past those. Then you Plant get to go to grade seeds. school. <laughs> Don't kill your siblings. Sibling. Just be chill, ma'am. I crushed <laughs> childhood then. <laughs> but, you know, so then you know, you're all about doing. And Jesus is like, you're too much about doing. You're not enough about thinking and believing. All you do is you do all the motions, but you don't believe any of it. What's your, what's your general feeling on Jesus and where, who he was as a person? Oh, seems like a very pleasant fellow. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I love uh, your ball. <laughs> yeah. I I always sort of grapple with the fact that he couldn't have been that pleasant because they hung him from a cross. Like he had to yeah. have been kind of a disruptive. Well, yeah, sure. I don't disagree that he was probably very disruptive, but um, and and but, you know, like people are very sensitive. Just think about. You know, Twitter is like everybody is very upset with each other all yeah. of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. not like, oh, I posit a different position than you, sir. Oh, well said. Yes. I have changed my mind. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen those tweets. <laughs> Didn't even use 140 <laughs> characters. Screen, Just screen cap those done. for me. So, you know, in that makes sense to me then that a disruptive person who's like, hey, all these corrupt people, um, they don't actually care about what they say their values are. You should care about your values. So this is this is going to be kind of an eternal tension. I think the the interesting thing, the thing that I get hung up on about old JC, and it's like, and this is a, a broad oversimplification, but this notion of like, well, I think at least he was like a very very good teacher. He was like a great. Hebraic teacher, but th- but that sort of discounts that at some point he's like going around and he's teaching people and he's like the 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 rich have received their reward and the poor will inherit the earth and take care of one another. Let's break down racial divides. Women deserve fair treatment. And by the way, I am the son of God. And it's just like a weird. It's just like oh, you were you were doing some really good teaching up until that last point where things took a took a hard left turn. I'll say I. 
<clears throat> you know, one thing you do learn as a Jew is that translation makes everything tricky. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what Aramaic is like, mm-hmm. but maybe I and we are very similar words. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're totally not similar, in which case this theory doesn't work at all. But ultimately, I mean, when, because we only know, in air quotes, that that Jesus says that stuff because some guys wrote it down decades later. Tell us that he said that. Yeah, and maybe they're saying actually we're saying that. Yeah, and then maybe he said that we all are made in God's image, which. Yeah happens to also be in the five books so you're covered do you know what i mean it in a way and and then you get to the oh i think 1600s and you have martin buber who says well actually god is the interconnected spark and energy between each of us and it's the god in between and that's a really fascinating text and you know we should all go read it but you know ultimately i think that what's fun about it is that each of us, even by Jesus, is probably commanded to figure it out. How are you going to normalize this idea of more than ourselves in a world that really makes you feel every day like you have to be self-interested and you have to protect yourself and your interests? Mm. And if that's what the world's pressure is constantly, then, okay, cool. You put in a counter-pressure. Mm-hmm. that says oh by the way only think outside yourself and only think of others and really work to strike a balance mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a brilliant point I remember w- witnessing my son being born was incredible and from a you know like a scientific American perspective, I would be like, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Human beings can do this. And, and the power of womanhood in that moment was like, I was just honestly uh, on my heels for days, uh, just totally um, in awe. But what it also made me think about, and I would take the Metro and I would move about the city and I would see, we were all these helpless little blob humans at the beginning. We all had to get through some tough moments, you know, and that commonality and that essential humanity between all of us, that's really hard to reconcile in the texts because in the ancient texts, it's like, cool, you're all, we're all oneness, everybody, Shema, you know, and then it's like, Oh, by the way, um, all these people are in this land that I promised you, so let's just fuck them up. <laughs> and um, here's your new house. <laughs> and that is not cool. You know, that's hard to reconcile. So um, you have to contend with that. And I think part of that is the way, like, I personally deal with it. Is I'm like, yeah, of course, because this isn't, these are stories that were orally passed down and then eventually codified far distant from their true origin source. And um, so they intermix with historical facts. And so, yeah, when you've got some like shit to deal with, mm. um, that See, is the art of war and politics, another human conflict, it will make its way into our texts. Mm-hmm. And so you have to just decide, 
if that's really part of the value set that you're trying to take away here, or if they're just going to be these parables that have, you know, some loose ends. You got to be a really good reader, then it seems like to really understand. Good news. Only five books. And we read them all. <laughs> we read them all every year. That's the problem with Christianity. That's an incredible Too pitch. many books. Too many 66 books. Six books. What are you just like? Yeah. Just like Every everybody has an opinion. Them. That's Paul, the whole point. Paul wrote a letter to everyone. You got to go through so. <laughs> Why are you reading this guy's mail and telling everybody to do it? <laughs> that tradition of memory, I guess I could call it, of remembrance, which is like the Shema. So much of that is like remember who God has been, remember who we have been as a people, and they even talk about that as a kind of an antidote for depression a lot of times is people who are disconnected from their past and they feel like they're just kind of floating in the world. And that floating makes you feel really anxious, really depressed, really unsure of where you belong. And Judaism from like an early on, especially being a diaspora where you get like ripped out of your home, you're forced to go, hey, remember, this is not where we're from. This is not who we're supposed to be. We were called to something more. We were blessed. We were given something amazing. We fucked it up. And now shit's going bad, but remember who God has been and remember who we have been. That feels like a a very uniquely Jewish tradition, at least when compared to the other Abrahamic faiths like Christianity and I don't know so much about Islam, but... Well, our view of the narrative doesn't include fucking anything up. Really? Right? Our view of the narrative includes only getting fucked over by Romans and kicked out of our homeland. That's actually our narrative is how often we are persecuted endlessly and tormented endlessly. But even with the Torah, and, which is all about like, like you said, making amends and yeah, but it's admitting also, that it's you also were about getting enslaved by Egyptians for hundreds of years and yeah. being lost and wandering and needing to find homeland. Um, so yeah, you know, that I think is actually like, that's like the big takeaway because that's the biggest holiday. And so it has the most widespread narrative staying is power being, is being the, the redemption yeah. story. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if, cause I have, I always had that perspective of the old Testament too, is that God is always communicating to the Hebrew people. Like, look, you guys started sinning yeah. and you like fucked up, but I'm going to send a redeemer or a judge or a King and I'm going to get you out of this mess again and i'm wondering if that is like a very uh if that's like a very christian perspective to lay over the top of it is uh it's like a very because that is kind of the way we see the world is that that's sort of the the christian paradigm of like look you fucked up and you need saving and so like i'm gonna step in and i'm gonna intervene whether it be through jesus whether it be through the holy spirit I'm going to get involved in your story because you're fucking it up and you're not living up to the plan that I had for your life. Right. So I, I think it's because what you just described was a hundred percent what I would have thought the old Testament was, was read as. So to hear you just say that, I'm like, Oh, that that's, that's just well, surprising. If me. you want to say a golden calf, that's fucking it up. Mm. <laughs> okay. That in the old Testament, that's how that narrative plays out. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, fucking it up. Noah, yeah, fucking it up. You know, and then I'm gonna save your ass. Or Sodom, I got, and, I got you covered. Are Sodom and Gomorrah uh, cities of Jewish people? I don't think so. No. Yeah, they're. they're I don't think so. But it. But Abraham's point is that it doesn't matter. Oh yeah, that's right. Let me find you. Right. Yeah. Let me I'll find, find you. Just a few good people. I'll find you ten. Then I'll find you five. Then 
Two and a half, and then one. Two and a half. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how math works. There's tons of. <laughs> I mean, there's tons of stories in the Torah, and even more in the Old Testament, of Jewish people just out and out sinning or disobeying God's law. I mean, oh, of course. But that doesn't transcend into a narrative about Jewish. Fuck, fucking Isaac takes his son or Abraham takes his son Isaac to the top yeah. of and he's like yeah, he's gonna kill him up I'm there. gonna do this yeah. and God's like what the fuck is wrong with you <laughs> well God also told him to do it God also told him that you're both gonna come down from the mountain I mean you know you can yeah. get into a great textual debate about it if you want but my point is that from a, from a what's the moral yeah. of the story perspective sometimes the answer is don't listen to me that's, that's, that's that's wild terrifying like that yeah. yeah that's wild but that's important i think that's so human it's it makes sense that in um in our like most ancient and like basic stories that we use with one another to create societies that we remind each other by the way don't listen to me that that was one of my favorite classes in all of seminary wars i took a three-week intensive on the book of genesis and it it literally broke it feel i could feel it like breaking people's <laughs> faith because we were we were having conversations like that, and there was yeah. one older lady who was a recovering addict, and she worked in AA, and her faith was very literal. Mm-hmm. And no, 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 God wouldn't do that. And it's like when you Actually, casually throw those bombs out, like maybe the moral of the story is, "Don't listen to me." I gave you a mind and a moral compass, and there's such thing as a gray area. Figure it out. To a to a recovering addict, you're like. No, no I, I, I need my higher power to be the anchor. Yeah. Yeah. Ambiguity is terrifying. That is wild. For a lot just, of people. It's like just even our shared reaction of like, what? Yeah. Why would you be <laughs> screwing with us like that? That's, yeah, that's, um, wow. You're very interested in social justice which is a major topic right now mm-hmm. especially from a political standpoint mm-hmm. do you feel that in a jewish context there is more there's a strong emphasis on being active in the current condition of the world today as opposed to holding out for that future eternity that i kind of touched on or we kind of touched on earlier that christians are kind of always looking for hoping towards that may kind of uh, make us feel a little numb to what's going on around us. Because, like, who cares we're going to heaven anyway? I can't imagine you would go to heaven if there was a global war and then, you know, you had to pick sides and maybe you picked the wrong one. Who knows, right? So then you might not go to heaven. It just kind of (laughs) depends. I guess part of it is, like, I don't think that Jews are unconcerned as an ideology or a theology with eternity, you have these like hints of it in, in things like, you know, we don't do tattoos because you're not supposed to desecrate your body because your body might need to be ready for round two. Hmm. Right. Um, so there is a little bit of that, but you're right. I do think that there is like a very strong focus on this world there's this interesting group of uh, spiritualists in the town of Sfat in northern Israel it's one of the holy cities and um, 
anyway, they have this whole idea that if, if, if everybody on earth, literally everybody, so no opting out, um, if everybody on earth said this, this phrase three times oh, in I've a row, heard this thing. Yeah. yeah. Then, you know, yeah, we all gangbusters. Yeah. If we all did it, it would, it would happen right, right. then and there. Bingo bongo. Um, and in a way what you need to, like what I remember them explaining to me was not how important the chant is. Who cares about the chant? If you can get everybody on earth to do anything, mm. then you've already achieved the messianic age hmm. and you've created that harmony. And so seeking that repair of this broken world that concept of tikkun olam, that is a pillar of Judaism. Recently, due to a project I'm working on, I started falling down rabbit holes of conservative Christian YouTube channels. I know, I'm great at parties. These are conservative fundamentalists who are not your stereotypical, cartoonishly depicted evangelicals. These are hardliners, reformed theologians. They are absolutely convinced that God is endlessly merciful, but also endlessly just. And because we are endlessly sinful, he must demonstrate his goodness by punishing us, unless we follow Jesus Christ as our only salvation. They are so confident about this that honestly, it still unnerves me. I don't believe in this stuff anymore, but they are so resolute, I can't help but quietly doubt myself. What if I'm wrong? Am I a heretic? Am I mistakenly leading you astray? Am I going to hell? There is most definitely a hell. What? And you're all going to go there when you die. Holy shit, we really are going to die! According to the Gospels, Jesus does talk about the afterlife quite a bit. Not as much as some other stuff, but he brings it up. However, he's a Jewish rabbi, so he's talking about the life after death in a Hebrew perspective. He talks a lot about Gehenna, a valley outside of Jerusalem where trash and carcasses were disposed of, which was constantly burning to ward off disease. It was a nasty place, and for anyone living within the walls of Jerusalem, the image of being cast out into Gehenna was a very clear image. But it's not the only afterlife that is spoken of. Some of the Old Testament prophets discuss a mysterious realm to come known as Sheol, which is sort of like the netherworld where the dead just sort of exist. But it's a neutral space, not one of judgment. Unfortunately, a lot of later biblical translations use the word hell to cover both. Finally, there are multiple rabbinical teachings of an after realm called Olam Chaba, which is interchangeable with Garden of Eden, a comparison to a world as God intended. There's one cool Jewish story about a rabbi who dies and returns back to life. His father asks him what he saw, and he responds, I beheld a world the reverse of this one. Those who are on top here are below there. His father replies, my son, you have seen a corrected world. One thing is abundantly clear. We have no clue what happens after we die. We can speculate analyze ancient teachings and trust the stories we hear, but none of us have any real clue. It is interesting to me that essentially every faith has some sort of hell, and that's the through line here. We seem to have this innate desire as human beings to see justice done. We want people to get what's theirs, goddamn them. In addition, all these human views of hell are really, really brutal. 
The Buddhist understanding of hell, Naraka, a place where negative karma is atoned for, is as absolutely nightmarish and apocalyptic as anything we have in Christendom. I think this is why, as a modern American audience, Jesus can come across as being a little harsh sometimes, because he's telling his followers to hack their limbs off if it keeps them from going to Gehenna. He makes looking with lust or insulting someone as enormous a sin as adultery or murder, and threatens it with fire. It kind of feels like an overreaction, but according to the Reformed conservatives, that's what God has to do, because he is good and we are evil. Begs the question, who is Jesus talking to? I'm taking some creative liberty here, but he's talking to his fellow Jews, who are living under the rule of a violent foreign power. They are prisoners in their own homes. They are abused, beaten, and robbed at every turn, and every one of his audience members most definitely wanted to see those Roman asshats tossed out of Jerusalem and into Gehenna. That would have been justice. Jesus is so radical, he says to his unfairly victimized brothers and sisters, the same sin that lives in them lives in you. It's one thing to ask a middle-class American pastor what he imagines hell must be like for unrepentant sinners. I wonder what hell looks like to child soldiers, sex slaves, and genocide survivors. I don't think they have to create a hell in some parallel universe. It's right here. We make it all the time. With every small action that contributes to a world of brokenness and hurt, a world where hell already exists, we separate ourselves from the community, safety, and security of a world corrected, a world as God intended. Shit, I really brought the mood down. Okay, on the flip side, N.T. Wright is a contemporary Anglican bishop who authored the book Surprised by Hope, in which he examines the marriage of Hebraic traditions and New Testament teachings of the afterlife known technically as eschatology. He is one of the pioneering thought leaders on the emerging concept of life after life after death. And by pioneer of an emerging concept, I mean something thousands of years old. Wright builds a case for the true gospel of Jesus being a message not of life after death for repentant sinners, but of a new earth and new life for all creatures and all mankind, a new creation, the kingdom of heaven. The message of Jesus becomes so insanely radical because he examines the death and resurrection of Jesus not as a bounty paid for disembodied souls upon reaching heaven's gates, but as testimony that death has been defeated, and there is life after life after death. It's pretty trippy, but a new planet certainly would be good news. Back to Sean. Uh, the final question that we always ask all our guests, um, and you can interpret it however you like. Uh, if you could communicate to our audience anything about God or faith as sort of a, uh, a, parting, a parting message, something you believe to be true and valuable, what would that be? Yeah, I think I would want to focus on lightness, you know, and so the concept of light is all over the texts and um taps in right it's like fiat lux and also you know your own lightness about divinity it's like such a big topic and it feels very weighty but ultimately divinity is kind of common it's all the time 
There are miracles all the time. There are things that people do for each other that are just kind and loving all the time that happens. Almost as often as I see people cutting each other off on the freeway, I see people holding space for somebody else, letting them in, letting them merge. And um, so there's a lightness to this conversation, a levity to it that I think is really important. I think it's really important for um, you guys to continue to have it and to continue to bring it to folks because if we constantly think like, okay, cool, my spirituality packed away, maybe it is on my mind a lot, but it doesn't feel like picking what I'm going to pick on Netflix or how I interact with everybody around me. Um, that light, I think you got to make it light enough that it is about those things because mm. divinity is in how we find each other and see each other. Wow. It's really beautiful. I like that. Great. Dang. Dropping truth bombs on this episode. Excellent. Sean, thank you so much. You man. guys are great. Thank you. Thank you for coming and doing this. Oh, we love it. <sighs> Turn on your air conditioner. We will. All right. That is the last episode of season three of The Back Pew. It's been a hell of a ride, and we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. If you did enjoy it, please rate and review us on iTunes. It means a lot to us, and it really helps us stand out amidst all the new podcasts out there. If you'd like to go a step further in supporting The Back Pew, we've got a few donation pages live today. Go to thebackpewpodcast.com slash donate, and you can either make a one-time donation or recurring donations on our Patreon page. And depending on when you hear this, you may notice that our Patreon page has no patrons. And that's because when we're not producing new content, we shut it down. We don't want to take your money for nothing, and we're in the middle of creating a lot more content for the show. So every little donation helps. We pay for everything out of pocket, and you'll notice we don't run ads because who wants to hear a commercial about Squarespace or manscaping in the middle of someone discussing their pancreatic cancer? Am I right? So go to thebackpewpodcast.com slash donate to make a donation today. We very much appreciate it, and we look forward to the next season of The Back Pew and all the many creative ventures we have to come. Follow us on Instagram at The Back Pew to hear all about what's next. Thanks for listening, guys. We love you, and we'll see you next time on The Back Pew.